break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on the 17th of May, 2021 on The Punch Out. We got plenty for you today, as we always do here on the show. This is at least allegedly supposed to be a big week for Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. So we'll check in on that. Over the weekend, there were elections for the Constitutional Assembly coming up there in Chile. So we'll let you know how that all went and what it means. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we're also going to check in on what the progress is of the Democrats' fairly meaningless, quote-unquote, police reform. Well, last year, Democrats up and down the ballot made the issue of addressing racist police terrorism a major campaign issue. Democrats really had been pledging since 2017 that they were going to do something to address the issue if only they could regain control of the White House and the Senate. Now they have control of the White House and the Senate. So where are they as it concerns this thing that they claim they were going to do? And at the very least, total out of voters was important to them. Well, you may not be surprised, since there were some indications that they might not do much to begin with, that it seems at this point, Democrats are set to allow 2021, the whole year, to go by without doing anything on, again, one of their marquee issues in last year's election. Now, while you may have missed it, this actually was playing out last week, maybe drowned out by other news, but there was quite a lot of talk in the political press about how the issue was almost certainly dead in the water. Now, Already, the Democrats had not been making a pretty big effort here in terms of the substance of the bill. Their major piece of legislation was the, I have to say, poorly named George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Now, it passed the House fairly easy, but it predictably stalled in the Senate. Now, the Biden administration, having already ruled out filibuster reform of any sort, it was clear that the bill would need 10 Republicans to pass, which already seemed very unlikely. And that in and of itself is really saying something, since the bill overall contained very little of substance, which was obviously part of this broader political strategy, knowing even many so-called moderate Democrats, conservative Democrats, whatever you want to call them, also might not be willing to move on a number of these issues. But when you look at the vast majority of the things in the bill, it was filled with changes that are essentially already proven to have no real effect on police terrorism. Things like putting federal bans on chokeholds that are already banned or limited all over the country and has made no real difference in the rate of police murders and abuse. Also, a major piece of it is using large federal grants, i.e. millions and millions of dollars, to police departments to adopt many of the failed strategies they've already adopted around things like implicit bias, tra- implicit bias training, and so on and so forth. So again, just from the outset, it was pretty clear the bill was designed to give the appearance of doing something while doing close to nothing. But there was one part of the legislation that held out some sort of hope for some sort of change, how significant it is, 
you can evaluate for yourself, but some sort of change for how police abuses are addressed. And that was a provision to end qualified immunity for police officers. Now, qualified immunity is a broad principle that applies to many public employees that's designed to shield them from lawsuits for doing their job. The way the laws have been interpreted as it regards police officers, though, is that essentially everything from cops trashing your house in a bogus raid to killing you, that the individual cops themselves cannot actually be held financially responsible for what they did. So the case for ending qualified immunity for police officers is that if they can be held financially liable for more abuses, it will ultimately curtail such abuses. Now, whether or not that actually would be the case is something that's up for debate, most notably because most states also have other statutes that protect police officers from having to individually be responsible for financial penalties, even that are levied against them as people. It shifts the responsibility to the state the city or the federal government, whoever it is in that in particular case. So XYZ cop found liable in many states, even if he's directly found liable, the city uh, in question, the police department in question uh, would have to pay. So when you look at that, the most likely immediate outcome of getting rid of qualified immunity would probably be an expansion of both the types of cases and the individual incidents that the cities, who are the main people who'd be dealing with, would try to just settle out of court right away. Now, that's certainly not something, but it's not nothing either. I mean, certainly victims of police terror and abuse deserve to be compensated. So ending qualified immunity would probably make it easier for more people to be compensated for a wider range of crimes conducted against them by the police. But qualified immunity is exactly where things have broken down. The Democrats who were led in the negotiations on this by Karen Bass in the House, Cory Booker in the Senate, have been meeting for months now with the chief Republican negotiator on this issue, and that's Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Now, there seems to be plenty of agreement on the provisions that basically do nothing, and that, of course, makes sense. Why would you not want to look like you were doing something while doing nothing? But qualified immunity seems to be the issue set to sink the whole thing. Democrats, most Democrats, it seems, want to keep it in because they want to tout something that generally most people advocating uh, around issues of police terrorism wouldn't mind seeing. Republicans, however, are unwilling to take even this very limited step. But I said some Democrats because Democrats appear to be divided on the issue as well. Jim Clyburn, one of the top-ranking Democrats in the House, really one of the most influential Democrats in the country, started off last week by declaring that qualified immunity should just be dropped as an issue, which directly contradicted Karen Bass's negotiating position that it must stay in no matter what. So shows right there the likelihood of getting the thing through isn't just Republicans, but Democrats playing a role. And on top of that, senior aides to Democrats and Republicans have already been telling the press that the conviction of Derek Chauvin has more or less made the leaderships on both sides decide that passing even a cosmetic bill just isn't very important. Democrats had set an informal deadline of May 25th to get a bill done by, and it looks set like it will not make it by May 25th, and that they will, in fact, just drop the issue right around Memorial Day. That's despite the fact that 55% of likely voters polled stated that they felt there was more, not less, urgency in addressing police terrorism, police abuse issues after the Chauvin verdict, including 77% of Democrats. So they campaigned on it, the Democrats, that is. Most voters overall and most Democrats think they should be doing more around the issue, uh, issues of police abuse and police terrorism. Yet, Democrats seem set to literally do nothing, not even something cosmetic or rhetorical. So say what you will, but one thing is certainly clear. 
that the priority for Democrats when it comes to policing is keeping the status quo the same rather than pushing transformational change. In October of 2019, the country of Chile was rocked by mass protests with millions coming out onto the streets. And the massive social explosion led to a process to convene a constituent assembly and draft a new constitution, something that many feel will allow Chile to address some of the underlying issues that sparked the protests. Elections for the Constituent Assembly took place this past weekend and delivered a blow to the current president, billionaire Sebastian Piñera, his ruling party, and its right-wing allies. Left forces have a clear plurality of votes, and if one includes the quote-unquote center-left in various lists of indigenous and ecological movements, the general trend is a clear rejection of the current constitutional status quo, and that constitution was written during the Pinochet dictatorship, and despite some amendments since then, is a constitution that remains one that enshrines the rights of property over the rights of people at pretty much every turn. The main debate are the main debates then are certainly set to be around establishing more durable social rights in education, healthcare, especially retirement, also other employment issues. The rules of the process will require two-thirds of the assembly voting in favor, something that no coalition really has on its own, creating many unknowns about the ultimate outcome of the coalition between coalitions, if you will, as well as independents shaping what actually takes place. Pinera's coalition did get the largest single share of the vote at 20%, uh, although it's significantly lower than how those forces have done in similar national elections. But the second largest bloc, which was uh, anchored by the Communist Party and the Broad Front, which are the two largest left-wing opposition parties, was close behind to Pinera's coalition. They had 18.7%, again, to the 20% of the right wing. And when you put together that left-wing list with a... Uh, with the list of the people, which is an alliance of smaller lists and independents that have links to new political forces that emerged as a part of the movement in 2019, then clearly left-wing forces will have somewhere around 22% of the vote, it seems. And the center-left coalition, which is headed up by the Socialist Party, ended up with 14%. So overall, you got about a third of the assembly representing the established forces and new forces from the center-left. So certainly a plurality there for the center to the left. This is also, by the way, the first election where parties outside the traditional major party coalitions have received significant votes. So it also stands as something of a milestone in Chilean politics, seemingly turning the page, at least to a degree, on the Pinochet era. Now the process moves to a nine-month period where the 155-seat body will do its work. The final result is set to be voted on next year. So the exact outcomes, well, we'll have to see how that plays out, but it does seem that Chile like many other countries in Latin America, is moving left. Well, this week is being talked up in D.C. as a big week for Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, known as the American Jobs Plan. After Biden spent most of last week negotiating with Republicans, they are supposed to be presenting a proposal for Democrats to respond to on Tuesday, with the goal then being that this week especially, uh, they'll be able to hash out enough differences so that the White House can tout progress towards a final bill by the time the Memorial Day holiday comes around in a couple of weeks. Now, any deal seems highly unlikely, however, without Biden and congressional Democrats giving up large chunks of their plan. 
And that may happen, but it doesn't seem incredibly likely. But more likely than that, it also will establish that Democrats will probably have to go it alone in the Senate, which will also require some watering down of their initial proposals in terms of what's able to pass through what's known as budget reconciliation, which allows them to pass the bill with just a simple majority of 51. So either way, whether they're negotiating with Republicans or negotiating with more conservative Democrats, it seems likely what will shape up this week is how exactly or the parameters of how the bill is going to be watered down and pared down by those in Washington. The issue that really it all still resolves around is how is it going to be paid for? Now, Republicans have stated that they're open to an $800 billion plan. And Biden's plan is about $2 trillion, both over 10 years. So Republicans are trying to use the dollar amount issue to advance their position that they are proposing what is really necessary in terms of quote-unquote hard infrastructure, bridges and dams and the like, and cutting out all the things like public transit they view to be quote-unquote liberal wish list proposals. So they're raising a high number but a lower number to create this fiction that they're more serious about infrastructure where Biden's just trying to push an ideological agenda. But that's actually a smokescreen over there, intense ideological agenda, which is over taxes. Republican plans towards infrastructure don't want any tax increases at all on wealthy individuals or corporations like Biden has proposed. Now, despite the fact that his proposals would, by the way, leave both of those taxes on wealthy individuals or corporations at historic lows, they just don't want to do that. Right-wing Democrats have staked out a position for a smaller increase in the corporate tax rate. So the Republican proposals fund pretty much everything based on quote-unquote user fees, think tolls, which are ultimately regressive taxes, where the biggest burden is borne by those making the least money for whom these taxes disguised as fees make up the largest amount of their income. And just think about it like this. If you pay $5 a day or whatever it is in tolls, if you make $35,000, that's going to be a much higher percentage of your income than someone who makes a million dollars, but you're both still paying $5 to pay for the roads. Now, there are big reasons why Republicans want to go this way. One is obvious, right? It prevents taxes from being raised on the wealthy. Uh, and, you know, no one would ever accuse the Republicans of not being for that. But two, it also means that localities are more likely to engage in public-private partnerships to raise the extra funds. And basically, this is what Republicans, and by the way, Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia is saying he's also open to this, um, are holding out will ultimately happen. And that's why they're saying the lesser dollar amount in a way is not necessarily saying that less will be spent on infrastructure. Their scenario, as it were, just to understand this, is basically this. It's going to be paid for one of two ways. Either... Both times, the government, federal government is going to borrow the money. So either the federal government is going to borrow the money, give it out to people, and then use the money on higher taxes to pay for the loans that they've taken out. That's Biden's proposal. Or the Republicans and some Democrat proposal will be they will borrow the money, give it to people, and require it be paid back vis-a-vis -vis user fees, um, which ultimately means that since it's less overall money being given to them, what will happen is localities will then go to the private market to make up the difference to actually, you know, accomplish things in terms of making the bridges and the levees safe. And they'll say, well, look, we'll give you a percentage of the user fees in order for, uh, in order for you to do this investment. So ultimately, it becomes a good deal for capitalists either way. They're not going to have their taxes raised. And potentially, they'll be able to get more into the game with these regressive taxes and capture more of that money from poor people in the guise of producing infrastructure. 
Now, the so-called moderate Democrats are not going to that extreme mainly so far, though, like I mentioned, Warner and others are open to it. But they're basically just saying, well, you got to pare back the amount of money that comes from the federal government via taxes. So we'll do some, but not a lot. And so essentially just shrink the overall size of the package, embrace some element of the user fee model from Republicans and add something on. And hey, we'll have, if not a bipartisan bill, one that passes with 51 votes that will look, quote unquote, bipartisan. Now, the big business lobbies are out touting the fact that they believe that they can defeat a significant number of the tax proposals. Politico reported today that, quote, corporate executives and lobbyists in Washington, New York, and around the country say they are confident they can kill almost all of these tax hikes by pressuring moderate Democrats in the House and Senate. And they think progressive Democrats don't really care about the cost of new programs and will be happy to push through as much spending as they can and then run on tax hikes in 2022 than actually pass them this year, end quote. So in other words, what they're saying is that the fix is, to some degree, already in. At least that's how corporate America feels. That no matter what people are saying now, almost all Democrats will swallow whatever watered-down compromise the White House decides to draw the line at. So the real question this week is, will any sort of counter pressure emerge, particularly around the issue of taxing the wealthy? And as we reminded you last week, you could fix all the bridges, dams, levees, and public housing in the United States, plus bring broadband to every area of the country for less than what major corporations spent buying back their own stock at a profit to investors in just the four, first four months of this year. So clearly, the rationale for higher taxes on the wealthy to make sure bridges and levees don't collapse is obvious. So again, the real question is, will anyone in Congress fight for it or will they be forced to fight for it or will they just allow the bridges, the dams, the levees, and public housing to crumble to avoid any tax increases on the wealthy? That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at B 